0: Real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam, this is Bowling, there are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. it's your neighbor.
1: Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweight. That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No plot, no characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's
0: what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. A toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. So oh, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I'm your host. This episode, I have a special returning guest to talk about a movie from my childhood slash teenage years. That it's a it's a weird movie, but it certainly fits the tone of the cult film Companion, and it certainly has garnered a cult reputation. I'm, of course, talking about Highway to Hell, but before we dive into everything that is the the movie Highway to Hell and not the ACDCs, I just wanted to mention that we are part of the Blind Knowledge Collective at www.blindknowledge.com, and that is a great website to check out podcasts and casts and music, from creators all over the world, check them out, www.blindknowledge.com. I mean, we are a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. Newsly picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse from articles from topics that you choose and you could follow topics as specific as you would like—from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians—and will find the r- latest articles and then read them to you. Stop scrolling, start listening. And they have podcasts. Explore trending podcasts from over fifty different countries. Our podcast, the Cult Film Companion, is of course there as a featured podcast. Download and use Newsly for free now www.newsly.me or the link in the description, and please use the promo code COLTF1LM. That's Cult Film. Drop the I, pop in a one, get a month free premium subscription. So, joining me this week is a returning guest, and I would like to welcome back to the Pul- Cult Film Companion podcast my friend uh, via the internet, a fellow. New Englander, and a great content creator, Melvin. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back over. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Rainy afternoon here in New England.
0: It sure is. And uh, that kind of, that, I mean, we've got to, I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about a movie, Highway to Hell, that's actually kind of bright and colorful. It's a bright and colorful movie for the most part, but... We're uh, yes. kind of putting the. Yes,
1: I would say it, it captures the feeling of the desert well. Like um, you can feel the dust, and some scenes for me, the 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 transfer that I watched, I watched it on TV, and you can feel it, like in the chase scenes, for example. There's there's chases in this, and um, you just feel that that sand. Like I can just imagine. I was like wincing in parts. I can I can imagine all that sand flying into your eyeballs and all that. It's like ah.
0: Well, I got some interesting stories about the sh- the filming of this movie. But before we get into that, uh, let's just kind of talk about what the plot of Hot Way to Hell is. We've got we've got lovers, not on the run, but lovers traveling to Las Vegas to get married. Uh, I'm trying to think what they call it. Elope. They're going to elope. Elope. They, yeah. yeah. They're
1: talking about eloping. They're. Uh, they're I guess uh I cannot remember this very clearly
0: now, but is it said that they're a teenager? I think the implication is that they had just graduated high school. That's kind of like the feel I got from it. Maybe he's like a year yeah, older, yeah. and she had just graduated. But in the lead, in, okay. our, in our we in our leads we have uh, Chad Lowe, who is Rob Lowe's brother. I don't really remember him from much. Uh, Rob Lowe has had much more prolific career, and his uh, yeah, girlfriend
1: significantly more visible profile.
0: Yeah, uh, and his uh fiance fian, uh, wife to be, is portrayed by Christy Swanson, and this was before starred in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And when I say Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm referring to the movie, not the TV series. Yes. And early nineties, yeah, early nineties movie. We've got Patrick Burgeon, who I'm not, I I'm not really familiar. I I he's got a recognizable face. I'm sure I've seen him in, in things, but he portrays the devil or Beazle or however you want to call it. And uh, Beazle, th- yeah, Beazle. We've got um also in a in a small role, but just one of those character actors that I always remembered is Richard Farnsworth who I I remember from the David Lynch movie The Straight Story but he's he's one of those actors he he just kind of turns up in all sorts of projects and he's kind of got that he just looks like a friendly grandfather. He just looks like your good old yes. friendly grandpa who uh who warns them that there's something dangerous on the road and uh, they're driving at night and they get pulled over uh, from a cop out of nowhere who turns out to be the Hell Cop who kidnaps uh, Christy Swanson and brings her to Hell and she is to become the Bride of Satan. Now, given that setup that I just said, it sounds like a pretty dark movie and I suppose that the underlying story is pretty dark, but this is a very... I would say it's a almost campy, horror, comedy, action-adventure with some uh, mythological elements kind of incorporated here. And um,
1: I would agree with that, yes. That's actually a very solid assessment. And I guess you could say it's also one of my main problems with the movie in that um, pitch as a horror movie. Like, for example, I saw it on Tubi. I found it on Tubi and I watched it there and it says horror, and I think horror comedy would have been more accurate, but the, as we proceed, as the, as the story unfolds, a quest, you could say it's a quest, you know, he's making this quest that it's a mytholo- has mythological overtones, is that the movie sort of doesn't quite stay in one thing. I would say the first half is very comedy heavy. The first half is comedy. The second half gets a little more existential, but it still has like look, these little moments of one-liners and, one thi- and things that we will get into. But that's uh, that was what struck me about the movie, the, that inconsistent tone that made me not engage as much as I might have if, if it had been a little more solid in its tone.
0: Right. And I remember when I rented this from the video store years ago, this was in the horror section. If I had to choose between horror and comedy or like adventure, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I'd throw it in the horror category. I would I would say it's more humorous than than it is horrific um but yes
1: what was your impression of it when you watched it back then you watched it you were like um were you confused or frustrated by it
0: no as a teenager i i think that uh, i felt i liked i remember liking the movie as a teenager but i felt a little ripped off as far as thinking this was a <laughs> horror movie because it's And now, this is interesting. We're going to get into some of the background of the movie here. Um, The the idea for this movie came to uh, screenwriter Brian Helgeland. And uh, we're going to talk about some more of his later career in a second. But the idea came to him one day, uh, one night. Him and his wife were driving and they were pulled over by a cop. And the cop? Proceeded to kind of circle their car, fly, you know, sign, uh, flash that flashlight right in their eyes, and kind of look around the car. And he circled the car, and he didn't do anything. And then he just like left, which is kind of a you know that's kind of just an odd experience to have with a police officer. There was no, I would imagine, yeah. There's no talking. There was no communication. If I had to warrant a guess, I'm thinking that this cop was looking for a particular set of individuals in a particular car, and maybe they kind of fit the description. And then when he saw whatever he, he was looking for wasn't there, he just let them go. But to not say anything is kind of bizarre. And it was either... Yeah, it's
1: terrifying, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, it was either Helgeland or his wife. One of them said, well, that's the cop from hell, um, just because it was so mm-hmm. bizarre. And so... I think part of the reason that this got lumped into the horror category is that there is a lot of people with a background in horror involved in this movie. Brian Helgeland, who would later go on to win an Academy Award uh, for Best Screenwriting in 1998 or 99, I have it somewhere in my notes, 98, he won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for L.A. Confidential, had previously his first produced script... Was for a low-budget horror movie called 976 Evil, which only is really only kind of notable because it's it was the directorial debut of Robert Englund, and Robert Englund, of course, oh, is yes. is Freddy Krueger. So, uh, yeah, he wanted to try his hand at acting, and he produced, um, and he directed. Uh, Helgeland's script nine seven six Evil, which is a pretty I mean, it's a, it's an okay kind of B horror movie if you're seeking that out. But then Helgeland, um, on the on I'm guessing on the recommendation from Robert Englund, he wrote the fourth installment in the very popular horror franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street. He wrote the screenplay for mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Not one of my favorite entries, but also not my least favorite entry in that particular series. So, yeah, we've got kind of a guy best known for writing horror screenplays. And this script has a very interesting backstory. He had shopped it around. He had gotten some... Um, some interest from different production companies and different movie studios but they kind of the way that this this was originally scripted they thought this movie was going to cost around 20 million dollars to make so they weren't willing to kind of invest in that and so it kind of it hopped around and there was a couple different people attached at one point or another. Actually, one of my favorite hard directors, Stuart Gordon, was attached at one point to direct. Mm, wow. And so there were two producers at a, at a company called United Artists. And mm. th- their names are John Byers and Mary Ann Page. And United Artists kind of flopped and was folded into MGM, and they were let go. And they had expressed interest in this screenplay. So as part of their severance package, when United Artists was folded into MGM, they were given the rights to Highway to Hell. And they brought it to John Daly of Hemdale Productions, and he said, okay, um, let's bring in Mr. Helgeland. And they kind of... the you know those th- these three producers kind of worked with Helgeland t- to kind of um not trim down his script but to change it so it would be um, they could film it at it a would more more affordable yeah, yeah because they were yeah, initially and, and there there isn't much talk about what kind of stuff was was cut out but you know this movie was budgeted at uh, I mean they were going to say this would probably take about 20 million dollars to do so on the other side of the uh, globe, well, not the other side of the globe, but, you know, across the pond, as they say, a Dutch filmmaker named Ate de Jong uh, was winning uh, international accolades for his World War II film, Shadow of Victory, and he had recently done uh, an episode of... Miami Vice, which was very popular in the eighties, and he was looking to make his first American picture, and he was signed on to direct Highway to Hell. So,
1: okay,
0: yeah, we got some interesting players here involved, and
1: that brings—it's an interesting point because now the moments when the movie feels a little bit existential, like almost like a Michelangelo Antonioni movie. Now it makes sense, I guess now that from if, now that I know that this about the director
0: yeah he um he certainly brings a very unique visual flavor to this movie, and there's some very interesting references scattered throughout this movie um to various different things, and some of them is a lot of them I didn't catch as a teenager, but you know getting a little bit more familiarized with um some, myth, some myths and uh just having some general knowledge of like pop culture uh kind of stuff there's some very interesting little nods to to things going on throughout this movie but to your point about it being very very dusty and um very it, feel, it feels almost it, it it's got the perfect setting for a western but it's not a western uh, this movie was shot in Phoenix and Page Arizona and also in Glen Canyon Utah between October 25th 1989 and then December 20th 1989 and then Hemdale Productions went bankrupt and this movie sat on the sh- this movie sat on the shelf for a couple years and after this Movie, um, Ate De Young directed one of my favorite kind of weird, quirky, gross out comedies as a kid that I loved a movie called Drop Dead Fred. Have you ever seen Drop Dead Fred?
1: Uh, yeah, I am trying to think of, because um, the name rings a bell, but I don't think I've seen it, dude. Can you tell me a little bit who, who's in it, like, you know, just
0: briefly? Um, well, the lead, the female lead is, uh, Phoebe Cates from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, okay,
1: yeah, no, I haven't seen it, no, okay,
0: no. Yeah, you would, it's it's about how, when she was growing up, she had an imaginary friend called Drop Dead Fred, and then, you know, as you grow up, you no longer have your imaginary friends, and this guy, Drop Dead Fred, comes back when she's in her, like, 20s, and, um, it's just a bizarre movie. It's very weird. It's got some really <laughs> gross humor. It's got some clever humor, but I remember it was one of the movies that me and my brothers loved to watch that my mother hated. She just not like this movie. Oh, <laughs> Cuz there's a, I mean there's a lot of like just kind of like it's some of the the, the humor is pretty crude, but anyway, so he that was released before Highway to Hell came out and Oh wow! Finally, this movie limped, and I mean limped, onto theaters on March thirteenth, nineteen ninety-two for the U.S. And guess how many theaters this was released into? Melvin, just take a wild guess.
1: I'm I'm going to guess say a dozen theaters, maybe like a handful in L.A. and a a few in New York and maybe Chicago. Twelve Ooh. theaters, I'm gonna say.
0: A Dozen Would Have Been Nice. This was released in about eight theaters. <laughs> oh, wow.
1: Oh, man, they just wouldn't go another four
0: more. <laughs> and the only reason that it was actually theatrically released was that in order for it to come out onto video, it needed to be released theatrically. So they were just like, uh, okay. And they probably threw some darts at a dartboard and released it in eight random theaters. This movie finally... You know, once the, the, the script was uh was altered to be more um budget friendly, it was the the budget was finally seven point five million and it grossed about twenty thousand dollars at the box office. Damn. But wow. consi- well, you know what? Considering twenty thousand dollars at eight theaters, uh, eh, you know, it's not terrible. But it's also not. It's
1: not terrible, yeah, because it was probably also like um, like a lit, if you went to the theater, you probably wouldn't see it also because it would be a, in like that very last screening room, like the one where that part of the theater was always kept. The lights were always kept off, like you know, you just wouldn't know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known because it probably had no marketing behind it. It sounds like it was a contractual obligation, and they did just the minimum required. They found like eight theaters where. I don't know, like where, in, like maybe dead regions, not not the capital cities, and just, just to fulfill the contractual obligation, and then they package it and send it out to video.
0: Right, you know, that's, I think it pretty much hit the nail on the head there. I, I I, wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure it was some sort of congratulatory. thing. I mean, um, so, yeah, Hemdale Productions... I I don't think they're around anymore, but they produced a lot of movies. And they were actually responsible for giving us the original Terminator movie and yes. also Oliver Stone's Vietnam movie, Platoon. Platoon, um, um, yeah. Handel,
1: you think of Handel, you think of some awesome movies of the 80s and not so much in the '90s. I I feel their their heyday might have been the '80s and the '90s. They kind of started to decline. Maybe they started losing money and such. And but yeah, like you said, like when you think of awesome movies growing up, like usually Handale might have had a hand in them.
0: Yeah, and um, one of the producers, this guy um, John Daly, unfortunately has this habit of being a uh, unwanted hands-on producer at times. Apparently what would happen is like the director and editor would work for the day and then they'd go home and then he'd go into like the editing bay and start re-editing the movies. Mm. And apparently apparently he did this with the Terminator and I think the only reason that he got away with it at the time is that, you know, James Cameron didn't have any name value or cachet, it like he does now no one's i mean nowadays like even after well after the terminator blew up i don't think after that no one's tinkering with a james cameron movie unless he's okay with it mm-hmm. um that's
1: true i wonder what he did to terminator what he in what ways he messed with it or maybe cameron found out about it and maybe changed techniques like he would take the footage home or he would only shoot one take so he had no opportunity to do anything that kind of thing
0: well, uh, it's speaking of taking it home. You kind of uh, <laughs> you took the Oliver Stone approach. Uh, that's a, uh, apparently what Oliver Stone did. He's like instead of leaving oh. instead of leaving his footage laying around so that John Daly could mess with it, he just took it home with him. He's like, Not nah, you're not messing oh, with my movie."
1: In, in the yeah, in
0: the room. So yeah, because I watched I one of other than Criterion one of another company that i like that put out some some kind of obscure weird rare movies is Kino Lorber i picked up yes that uh, i picked up Kino Lorber uh version of Highway to Hell and i and i i watched uh, the movie and then i watched it with the director's commentary and very interesting uh commentary but he's he's like the basis for where i'm getting all this information from and he mentioned some scenes, and I mean, it's it's tough for me to to kind of voice my opinion on it because I don't know what the original scenes look like. But he just kind of mentioned he would say offhandly that this was a this was a shot that John Daly. I think that um, I, apparently John Daly likes uh, kind of rapid edits, like one of those rapid fire, like there's got to be a cut every two seconds kind of thing. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, Ate De Young was saying that he kind of likes to let the um, the scenes breathe, and that he has a very meticulous way of of filming and shooting. But I've rambled enough. I'm I'm interested to hear what um, because this was a first time watch for you, correct?
1: It was a first time watch. Yeah, it's interesting. Just maybe a month ago. Um, there's a YouTube channel that I watch where um, they do movies like that. And he, they he, they kind of cover movies like this. And he happens to cover this one. And I had never heard of the movie. I somehow, this is one that back in the days of the video store, I never noticed the poster or the cover. So when you um, uh, approached me about this, I was, oh, it's interesting. It's that movie that I actually heard about a few weeks ago. And I looked it up. And oh, there, Tubi to the rescue. Tubi, always comes <laughs> through. yes, um, it does. Yeah, it was the first time watched. Watch, first time watched.
0: So what? Is, so what were your like your general thoughts about it? Um, I mean, you you
1: well, overall, I liked it. All I liked it. It was entertaining. Uh, on a more specific basis, it felt inconsistent. Like the movie starts in a comedic sort of way. Like um, he's they're in a diner. They're taking a break from their their road trip to Vegas to get to elope. And he's paranoid about a cop who's just there. Who's just I think he's playing a video game, but he's getting paranoid about it. And then they leave. And the whole scene up until they take an exit and uh, uh, to lose the cop, because he's convinced the cop is chasing him. It's just the cop. This is not the hell cop that we mentioned earlier. No. It's just a a regular cop on the beat, just doing his route. But um, our hero is very paranoid about it. And he takes an exit, he takes a highway exit to see if he is being followed. And the cop doesn't, the cop just goes on his merry way. And up until that point, the movie has a like a silly, fun, comedic tone because he's sort of bumbling. He's a young guy, but a little bit insecure, a little bit um, foolish, and I guess nervous, too, because they're eloping. They're doing something, you know, they're going to tell their parents later something, but they're probably going to lose their shit when they find out that they did that.
0: Sure, because, yeah.
1: Again, the movie's not specific, but it implies that they they just finished high school. They're they're just out of high school. Yeah. So up until then, now they're in this dark highway, and now the tone is more, is more dark and ominous, but then... They run into one gas station where the actor that you mentioned earlier is in there. And the movie, again, becomes silly and comedic. But then after that scene passes, again, the movie becomes more ominous. And it stays that way until our hero goes to hell to look find his girlfriend. And there, the movie, for this first half of the movie, it stays mostly in a comedic tone, in a sort of silly, campy, comedic tone. And, um, yeah, like, I, I liked it overall, but I, I found that a little... Frustrating, I wouldn't say frustrating, but like a minor nag in my brain, like I, in a non-conscious kind of way, I registered those changes. I registered how the movie sort of went from like a, a, an existential, uh, like road trip to just silly, fun, (laughs) uh, (laughs) happy movie. And that can be a little bit frustrating, but in a a mild way, like some things I registered more in my subconscious than in an an over-conscious way. I think. Mm, How about you? Let's see your thoughts on that.
0: Well, I think you bring up a very interesting point. Um, I think it's very interesting that the the beginning of this movie, like the first third, takes place at night. And it is very, like you said, it's dark, it's ominous. Um, there's a sense of paranoia. I mean, he's, he's concerned that um, he finds out that uh, Christy Swanson's character had left a note for her mom. So he's like, oh, my God, your parents know. They ca- They called the police. This cop's after us. And so, yeah, he's very paranoid. And, well, then, yes, yes. and then they... I um, forgot
1: about that. Yeah, like, the, she let her know that, I'm, that made him lose this shit even more. Like, he split he spit his food and everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That,
1: oh, my God. Like, you he see, he's after us. He's definitely after us.
0: It almost... It, it, it kind of seems like this kind of scene you would have in a sitcom or something. It's, um... And then they, they arrive at, um... I don't know if this is, like, a prerequisite for for horror. I'm using that in air quotes. Movies to have, like, a weird, quirky gas station. I mean, like, there's, like, Roman pillars <laughs> in this gas station holding up yes, the lights. Exactly, yeah. And the guys... The
1: station, when he first pumps the gas, Um, I guess he hasn't... There's not much business because of the highway. You know, like, these little side stations don't have much business. And he starts pumping, like, you know, activating the pumps. That's like the pumps that you have to push, prime them by pushing the handle to prime them. And you see, like, dust, like sand coming off the pump at first because it's just been so long since he used it.
0: And, uh, yeah, so he gets kind of creeped out by this old guy and then, like, the old guy. Yeah, and then it's peculiar because the guy's like, "Um, listen, I got a cabin out in the back. Fresh sheets. You guys can spend yeah. you guys can spend <laughs> the night here. And they're like, No, we're good dude. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna yeah, go to yeah, Vegas.
1: He that reminded me of um I don't know if it was um Oh my god. One of those Ivan Reitman comics from the two thousands. I don't know if I I d I wanna say um Road Trip or Euro Trip. The one where like grandpa takes Viagra and now his his junk is like his erection is knocking things over. I was thinking of that. I don't know why. Like, maybe, like, if it wasn't
0: the Catholics of today, Viagra will probably be mentioned in that scene. Rob, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I got a bottle of Viagra there on this cab, and I promise, I, I, he's like, <laughs> I promise you your privacy. And you're just like, all right, man, You're, you're, uh, you're overstepping your bounds here. We just wanted some gas. And he tells them to be careful. I think he tells them to be careful, not to fall asleep, and, or don't stop until you pass the second Joshua tree. And yes, yes, they are. They're driving along. She falls asleep. The dog falls asleep. Um, and they're just about to approach that second Joshua tree when all of a sudden this car, uh, cop car pulls out of uh, behind a billboard. I think and um
1: i think what happened was um they passed the first tree but before they can get to the second one they, you know he falls asleep hits the billboard and then stops you know so they they you know he made that the he hit the brakes before they could make it to the second tree which i guess prompts the helicopter it's okay never, i like that about that in that it's never he tells he warns them but you don't see that payoff pay off until later and it's like okay so if you go In between those two trees, without stopping, you're good. But if you stop before in between that area, I guess you know that's Hell Cop's uh, beat, so he he gets you, and that's what happens. He hits that billboard. uh, Hell Cop is hiding behind it, and now just um, the Hell Cop just cuts them up, and it's an awesome
0: introduction. Yeah, and take over, (laughs) and then um we get our first look at Hell Cop, and I I I dig the look of the Hell Cop. Um,
1: yes, yes. In a, in a different context, he would be a terrifying character. But uh, again, because of the, the tone of this movie, he kind of—he's uh, sort of a little bit of a, a joke, even though he is terrifying and physically press Has an imposing presence. He never quite—we never quite cross over into that, into that, into that situation where he would be like a, a foe. He would be like a Jason or a Freddy Krueger. Right. We never quite get there. But he is an imposing presence, and. So we see, first he has this uh, car that sounds like there's uh, uh, the engine is like a, 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 an, in, an engine. Uh, the so engine is a... What, what am I trying to say?
0: Kind of sounds like a beast. Yeah. It, it
1: doesn't make the noise of a car. It whines. And when he steps out, his he pushed down his boot and smoke comes out of it. Yeah. Like he's, it steps and like he leaves like little smoke puffs. So he, this guy literally stepped out of hell. Great so, introduction. then he's like big and imposing... He's scarred, like his head and uh, face are scarred. His sunglasses are sort of stuck to his face permanently. Amazing. Just a really cool creature, this time.
0: So, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the actor and a little bit about the makeup. So, the actor is CJ Graham, who I knew nothing about, but he played again going back to our our horror references here he played jason and jason lives friday the 13th part 6 so oh okay
1: okay yeah.
0: and originally i guess as scripted the hell cop was supposed to be half man half lizard and um they their makeup guy uh, steve johnson was like no nah, you don't want you don't want to go with that that's like one of the most uh, no, half half lizard, half zombie. So they were just like, "eh, that's kind of like stuff that's been done before." And so mm-hmm. he took inspiration that he figured that if this guy's from hell, hell is you know kind of like what we think of a stereotypical hell is hot and fire. So maybe that you've been burned by the flames of hell. Um, but they made mm-hmm. they made a conscious effort. They're like, "Well, we really don't want it." I mean. The most notorious horror villain that has is burned is Freddy Krueger. So they made it a conscious effort not to make the guy look like Freddy Krueger. So he's he's got this kind of it kind of looks like the skin. It looks kind of like a melting mannequin kind of look. But then they put yeah, in.
1: I a combination of also cuts. Like maybe he he fought one of the cenobites and got cut to help, but he won the fight. kind of thing.
0: So. What actually is, is there's written, I guess there's biblical verses written all over his head. That's what it, I, the little oh, scars. Wow. That is pretty clever then. Yeah, they're, um, he took inspiration from, he was, uh, Steve Johnson was reading Clive Barker's book, uh, one of the books of blood, and, the guy Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. He cut I think he gets either tattooed or every time he commits a crime or a sin that it becomes like um drawn into his body. Um or I think the whole basis for the Book of Bloods is all the stories are written on this one guy. It's been a while since I've visited the Books of Blood. So apparently there's all sorts of ominous things written all over this guy's face. And like you said, it looks like his sunglasses—they just look like a pair of Ray Bans, but they got no, um, they got none of those side earpieces. Like earpieces, Yeah, it, he has no
1: ears. Um, I don't think either. He does. They're burned off. No, he's got ears. Oh, he does? Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm just—I just know because I'm looking at the the DVD cover, and he's got ears. Now. Oh, Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it looks like the 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 glasses are kind of m- m- molted into his face, and then. Yeah, like they're stuck there. Yeah. And then when we go to hell, everything becomes, like, bright and colorful. Like, I mean, it's all shot in the desert. So it's kind of a weird juxtapose of, like, you know, if they were traveling a day and then they end up in hell and it's it's nighttime where it's all fire and kind of stuff. But this version of hell is weird. It's almost like Pee-Wee's Playhouse. If Pee-Wee's Playhouse, Mm -hmm. like, went into hell... That's just kind of what I would think of, um, like the first. The
1: Playhouse, yeah, that edge on hell, yeah, that that was like one or two sketches away from being like a terrifying show.
0: <laughs> but I mean, I mean, do you, what do you think overall about their depiction of hell? What did you think?
1: I thought it, it was just funny. It was more like a, like a, like um. Let me see briefly. Uh, it it was just. I don't know. Like, I, I guess let's say, <laughs> I just thought of this now, actually, let's say uh, if you had a group of comedians who never quite struck it rich and they all went to one place and you had to listen to their number all day long, I guess that's what this hill will be like. <laughs> if <in> a <laughs> way, that's what it was, you have been Stiller nonstop none throwing jokes at you. Every time you went past them, you had his father trying to get a cup of coffee in there on, uh, and he could and he got uh, burnt I think but the place as a whole like the waitress also the waitress had like a her she had a routine I guess about her life like everything was a a, a stand up everything was a stand up routine in that in that at least in a portion of hell like the, the initial the part of hell that we were introduced to when nice. when Chat Lo starts his quest to look for his girlfriend it, just, it was just like a, a a hell for for comedians I guess like a you, you you never quite struck at rich. You never quite got to the level of Kevin Hart or any of those people. So this is where you go, and you get to do your act all, all the time, nonstop. Yeah. And nobody really pays attention to you, but you get to say it.
0: Yeah, I mean the first the first set piece in Hell is this coffee shop, and so we got a note. So um, we have Jerry Stiller, uh, playing a cop. That's his wife. Um. And Mera is, is it was the waitress and oh, okay. yeah, yeah. they got them as a package deal. They were like, OK, like we got they uh, the intent was they wanted to get some um, some comedians in for for cameo roles and they didn't really have the budget to get too many. But they got Jerry Stiller and his wife um, and Mera, who agreed to do it, but. They needed to include their children in it. So we have I think this is yeah. Ben Stiller's first film role. And then Amy Stiller I think it is, it is. Amy Stiller shows up later in the movie, um as Cleopatra, and we'll get to that scene later. But I wanted to talk okay,
1: a little okay, okay. Now I remember. I was a little confused by that by Cleopatra. But okay, now you clear that up for me,
0: okay. Y- yeah, there's a there's um there's this scene. Well, let's talk about the coffee shop first, because this is like this is like Um, I kind of see it as this coffee shop is where all the bad cops go. And if you look, they're all waiting for cups of coffee that never get filled. And the yes. the thing of donuts on the counter is all locked up. So I guess the implication is if you're a bad cop and you go to hell, that you can never have your coffee and donuts. So I guess that's the yeah. joke. Um, and yeah, then you, I like
1: the fact also that their uniforms are dusty, so they've been waiting a long time. Like, that little detail, too. They've oh, been waiting so long, like, dust is settling on them. They're, like, becoming, like, stone almost. Right,
0: exactly. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the implication of, like you were saying about the stand-up comic that never makes it, that they're just kind of stuck in this loop. These cops are all stuck in a donut shop where they can never have donuts and coffee. And then you have Ben Stiller as the short-order cook out on the sidewalk and he's cooking everything on the sidewalk cuz it's hot as hell. I have to it's say hot, yeah. I'm gonna ask for your opinion in a second. I like Ben Stiller. I think he's very very funny. I did not think he is funny at all in this role. I did not find him funny and he improvised all of his lines. I didn't think he was funny.
1: <laughs> what did you think? I I thought he was okay like um I think it, he was star, starting up, and it shows. Like, his material was that. His material was probably stuff he did for his father when he was a teenager. <laughs> and, like like he said, to give his son a break, like, um, they, they put him in the movie. And it's funny because the, the video that I watched, they said the same thing. They said the, the people, the producers, they said, like, this guy, yeah, he's never going to amount to anything. Like, this guy sucks. He's not funny at all. And I think they wanted to even get rid of him or find some way to edit him out of the movie. But I guess they couldn't because of what you mentioned—the the, the deals that you know for which Jerry Stiller and his wife got the, their kids in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's beginner's act. It's like uh, someone just starting out in comedy. Yeah. Like, I'm glad he stuck with it because eventually he got much better at it. But yeah, like I know what you mean. It was just elementary. It's like jokes. I like, guess like something you would do at, at the local club if you 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 decide to do one you know amateur night kind of thing.
0: Yeah, or like you said, you know, I get, you got to cut the guy some slack. I mean, like I said, I I I happen to think that most of his are, movies, excuse me, are quite funny. Uh, I think he's very talented. Yes, I agree. I just think that this. I mean, if I was going to show someone a <laughs> a, a clip of Ben Stiller being funny, it's not going to be this. <laughs> no, <laughs> I no, mean, no,
1: don't show him that. No, definitely, no work against him. No, but it's cool to see he's moving on. But he actually got much much better. And in fact. Um... All around, like on a tour, because you know, eventually he started writing and directing as well. Right. Uh, starring in, in movies, so very good, good for him that you know, out of every humble beginning that had no promise, he he's become very much very good a comedian and filmmaker.
0: And then we've got, um uh I mean, this movie kind of it, it, after they go to hell, it's kind of just like a series of set pieces almost. Uh We've got the coffee yeah, shop. Yes, definitely. Then we get, um, Chad Lowe gets into hell, and the first person he comes across is, does he end up at the donut shop first? He eventually ends up at the donut shop, there's this gang, um, oh, we gotta mention, uh, I forgot to mention, the reason that this guy, the old crazy gas station clerk knows all this stuff about what's going on, is that, uh, him and his wife were traveling, and she got kidnapped by the hell cop and brought to hell i think he said 40 years ago um
1: yes we forgot that when when that happens when um when chadlow's girlfriend is kidnapped christy swanson he goes back to the old man for and the old man immediately i and i like that sequence too because there's none of this disbelief like i find it irritating when someone goes through like a bizarre surreal experience in a movie and when someone tries to explain to them what is happening, they refuse to believe it. And and this movie actually that was very clever writing. They he under he accepts immediately what happened. And, you know, when he starts briefing him, here, take this and take this and take this awesome like, you know, vintage car. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. In that sequence we find out that um the old man, his uh, I think you like you said, yeah, forty years ago, they were writing and, you know, that happened. Hell Cop uh, came and took his girl. And um his girl is there now, and she looks like she did 40 years ago. She's young. I don't know the actors. I I, her, I tried to look up the actress, but I couldn't find any information on her.
0: Yeah, I, I I, don't remember. Actually, I don't even remember what her character's name is. But, yeah, that's how he knows yeah, what's... I
1: think it's Elizabeth. I want to say her list.
0: I think you might be right. Um, Sam? Yeah, yes, because he... he uh, Clara. He had a conversation with
1: her because... Um, Clara
0: is like, her but, name.
1: She's, she's her... I'm sorry?
0: Clara is her name.
1: Clara, okay, yeah. Yeah, because he recognizes her from a photo. When he goes back to to tell the old man what happened, and he explains you know, what happened, and what he needs to take with him, there's a photo of her. And then later on, when he is going through hell looking for her, he runs into this gang, and she is with the gang. She's kind of, you know, like a a hell biker gang. They seem to be riding um, BMX bikes rather than like Harley's, like that's what I would expect Hell Riders to ride, like big hogs, you know. But no, they have like a um, motocross bikes. Actually. Yeah, they got uh, dirt bikes. about that, maybe I couldn't afford Harleys. That would have been not like, of, out of, too expensive.
0: Probably. And that gang, other than the leader of that gang, I want to say Royce is the leader of the gang, portrayed by Adam yes. Stork. Other than that, the other gang members were an up-and-coming English rock group uh, who never – they mentioned the name in the commentary. I've never heard of them, so I'm not going to mention anything else. But they were uh, They were supposed to be – even the director was kind of – And the commentary was like, well, they were an up-and-coming rock group. Uh, they were probably more up-and-coming then than they are now. And I was just like, okay. Wow. Um, yeah,
1: it's pretty bad if you cannot even name one single, or at least you know, like their one-hit wonder kind
0: of thing. Like, no, they're I not.
1: Something happened, and the, on their way up.
0: But we do get we do get a rock star in here, and in, in one scene, uh, Chad Lowe um, comes across a hitchhiker who is '80s rock star Lita Ford, who was. Oh
1: yes, I remember that. Yeah.
0: Who was more? Yeah,
1: that was a fun scene too because she started tempting him with her cleavage.
0: I mean, that's the whole thing that I I guess that the whole point of this movie is that um, hell is all about temptation. It's good versus evil. Sometimes what is good is not always good. Sometimes what is evil is not always bad. But yeah, he's tempted by this hitchhiker who leans into his car, and she was... Lita Ford was more than happy to show off her cleavage. Um, Yes, But the female producer was not a fan, uh Marianne Page um for a couple reasons. She didn't she didn't want um like to have this movie to be over overly sexualized and at the time they were they were aiming for a PG thirteen so they didn't want things to get too graphic. Uh this movie as released is rated R and it's funny because on the box it says rated R for bizarre fantasy violence, which I say okay, and then for nudity, and I was like, nudity? I don't remember any nudity. There is nudity in this I mean, movie.
1: Either. I don't remember any at all. Well, to think back. I wanted the movie in my mind, And like.
0: No, you probably. Know. I don't
1: think we get anything like
0: that. No, we do. We get gross female naked demon nudity when. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. This I,
1: is bizarre because it's like, wait, maybe you, you need to get more specific and say bizarre. Well, say human nudity or otherworldly nudity. I was going
0: to say, yeah, but it's not mean, human nudity. Bizarre side, the,
1: the bizarre is it's such a vague reason to get the movie an R. It's so unspecific.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would think with a couple trims here and there, um, this could easily be a PG-13, but... Regardless, but there is nudity. Like you said, I love it. It should definitely be for otherworldly nudity. Because there is a scene where uh, Chad Lowe is being tempted by Christy Swanson. But then, a la that scene in The Shining, he looks into the mirror. And uh, the girl he is with is actually a repulsive demon. Um, yeah, yeah, her body
1: did you- just bizarre square, Like scaly, slithery, slimy looking. And And she gets aggressive. Yeah, she starts, like, attacking him, throwing him against the wall, like, using her tail to strangle him. Yeah, she uses her tail. You
0: you heard that right, people. She has a tail. She is naked. And the nudity is that she has gross, saggy, and I mean saggy, like, down to her waist, gross demon boobs. And that's the nudity yeah, that yeah. we're given.
1: Yeah, talking about um, like, unappealing nudity. A nudity that
0: will t- make you, turn you off from nudity, actually. Right. Nudity yep. That is would make you not want to see nudity. No, it, it it's it, it very much, uh, the director did comment on that in the commentary that it's very much an homage to that scene in The Shining. Um, I'm sure if you've seen oh, this... Oh, nice, wow. Do you remember that scene in The Shining? Jack Nicholson...
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very unsettling scene, it's such a, especially because of what it perceives it is so tempting, you know, like they're in that place alone, but there's this beautiful woman just waiting for Jack Nicholson to come over. And, you know, what we're not going to get into that because we know what happens. But what I like about this sequence is um, early in the movie, he gave her a pendant because, you know, she is a little bit, uh, she's kind of having second thoughts about what they're doing. Yes. And he gives her like a little, like a, a pendant, a Nicholson pendant. And when he comes over, you know she lost, she loses it. When Hellcop kidnaps her, he loses that. She loses that pendant. He finds it on the floor, and eventually goes after her. And he has it with him through the whole um, journey, through the whole uh, uh, ordeal. Yep. And when he reaches her, first of all, she's so usually attracted to violence. He's been fighting Hilltop and that sequence that we mentioned, and he, so he's bloody. His face and nose are bloody. And Chrissy's Swanson is like licking the blood and just getting very sexual. And he tries to put, give her the pendant. And she has no interest in it. And he's just, What is going on here? Like she, you're acting so weird. That, like i you know, I've been after you all this time, I'm happy to see you, but you're acting so bizarre. And then he looks in the mirror and ah, there's the reveal. Okay. Yeah. And we see that later on when he does catch up with the real Christy Swanson, the next time the the thing he does is he shows her the pendant and it's oh, okay, now I know it's you because he's acting so bizarre with her. Yeah. Because she doesn't know what he went through. So <laughs> it really well put together, really cool sequence that, that pays off. Over the, the over the next into the next scene.
0: Yeah, there is. I mean, I, and that's what I gotta say that the, there's some clever um, script writing and some very clever uh, filmmaking going on. Some of the things yeah, that I, I yeah, got
1: mythology also. The way, for example, when he goes back to the old man and he explains, well, there was well, you know uh, my girl, like she made a choice. She went with them. You know, I lived that. in that little moment, they give the the character so much more depth when we see her when he chatlo runs into her and he has a conversation with her too that you know like you i made a choice you know you should leave now but you know i'm not leaving without her he explains, i'm not leaving without my girlfriend yeah so it's that i mean like it's a movie that it it has camp but um there is very clever writing and very uh, clever execution of scenes so it still holds up it's still very well made it's just that odd on the that odd um lack of consistency in the tone, how it just goes from camp to comedy, and almost from scene to scene. One scene can be horror, but then suddenly it becomes comedy and camp again. Then it becomes more horror-driven. It's just constantly, from one scene to another, that happens.
0: Yeah, it's very inconsistent in its tone. I mean, um, I just want to mention some of the clever things that I particularly like, is that the Hell Cop has hand- cuffs yes hands these are hands
1: that was fantastic <laughs> that was really impressive yeah Do the, they get a little bit into how they created that in the commentary because that was awesome they were
0: it was both a visual fun that was
1: really clever but as a practical effect it was so well made they were just so cool
0: uh they were very very so well like they were very very expensive i think they cost around seventeen thousand dollars to make um wow uh, but I love, I mean, I. that's kind of why I love this. I mean, and I'm going to lump this into horror just for the sake of my point, but I love the practical effects that were going on in the 80s as far as uh, horror practical effects are. Those hands, they've got like a life of their own. Like the, the hands almost have personality. Like uh, I kind of would say that it's kind of like Thing from the Addams family, that hand that just walks around. Yeah yeah Member um, member of the family in that yeah. yeah um but i i love the uh i love that that he's got actual handcuffs and um it's handcuffs, yeah and it's funny I mean,
1: they're like zombie hands they're like greenish like uh sort of like rotten but not decaying. they're just sort of like a they got like a the color of like a corpse you know when a corpse starts uh, changing colors they have that colors with them
0: absolutely and but it's funny because one of the scenes when she briefly escapes from Hell Cup, she pours hot coffee on the hands, and the hands react like they're getting burned, yeah. and they release her. Um, another uh, one, of, another clever thing that I like is that we see a, a um, we see a part of Hell that it's Good Intentions Paving Company, and of course, oh, yes, the, yes. the 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 quote is the the road to Hell is paved in good intentions, and you have these people walking up. And declaring their sins, like one guy was like, uh, yeah, I let her drink that cup of bleach, but she, that was a lesson she needed to learn. Or a lady walks up and is like, I was only sleeping with my husband's boss to help, uh, boost his career. (laughs) And then they just, they're just led into this meat grinder. Um, yeah, that we get. Oh, oh, yeah. But another one of the one of the things that I definitely didn't pick up on as a teenager that I just picked up on this rewatch and I think this is genius. It's probably my favorite little part of the movie that has absolutely nothing to do with the plot or anything is that we have what looks like sanitation workers that are all dressed up like Andy Warhol throwing trash onto the highway instead of cleaning it up. And I love it. It's like... A...
1: Oh, I never noticed that, actually. I mean, I saw them, but I, I thought they were picking up the trash instead of throwing the trash.
0: No, it's a bunch of people, and they all have, like, the white hair, like Andy Warhol and Andy Warhol sunglasses, and they're, like, throwing Campbell soup cans onto the highway.
1: Oh, wow, I didn't know. Yeah, once again, another little clever knot to... I guess because... That would be considered... Hard. Like, Andy Warhol did that... He gets paid millions of dollars for like I don't know for it. But here is just I don't know. I guess the director say what he thinks about Andy Warhol. No, he said he, <laughs> he liked. Was dead at this point, so I wonder what his thoughts were on Andy Warhol. Though, if I included that.
0: Well, what he said is just like I mean, he did the. Ex- what would he said? Andy Warhol spent his life creating art to make the world a more beautiful and interesting place. What would Andy Warhol be like in hell? He would be throwing trash onto the highway. And that's pretty much that kind of sums it up. So I oh, thought okay, that okay. was pretty clever. And then we have a, our next set piece takes place at Hoffa's. So apparently this is where what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, he Jimmy now, he, hell, I guess. he <laughs> runs a club in Hell now, apparently. Uh, but like you said, that that's. Yeah, that was pretty
1: funny, yeah. That's, oh, yeah, I, I guess we do get nudity there right? Don't we have like a brief Oh, um,
0: yeah, you're right. There is There's a there's a cage yeah, dancer guess, yeah, that's we did, yeah, we, we do. Get yeah, but we don't get nearly we we get a, a couple shots here and there. We get full on like yeah, demon uh nudity later, but this is yeah, this is kind of where like the tone kind of goes all over the place because he shows up to 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 rescue uh, Christy Swanson and then he gets shot like full-on shot right in the chest like and that's a, it's a pretty yeah. gory shot like you said like it's kind of lighthearted and funny and goofy we're at a place called Hoffa's and I mean it's all and then we get so then we go from like a weird abstract kind of looking kind of place to a guy getting shot in the chest And then we get him recovering from his gunshot wound. Beazle comes to help save him. And then we get a scene where Attila the Hun, Cleopatra, and Hitler are all sitting around a table talking. It's bizarre. Um,
1: it's sorry, yeah, because like I guess that was Amy Stiller, like uh, what you mentioned earlier, maybe, yes, to me now about why they were spending so much time on these people. And I can understand in the case of Hitler, because that was actually Hitler was Gilbert Godfrey, he was playing Hitler,
0: and Gilbert Godfrey and is... The whole
1: thing that is happening too. Like a servant is like paging E.T. Amin, it's something that I get now, but if I'd seen this back then, I would have no idea who he was talking about at the moment.
0: Right, I immediately knew, I was like, okay, that's Gilbert Gottfried, who is famously Jewish, playing Hitler, which is just ex- Hitler, yeah. is something that Gilbert Gottfried would do. And then you got Ben Stiller, as I had to look it up. I thought it was Genghis Khan, but apparently it's Attila the Hun, and that's then Cleopatra. The okay.
1: Yeah, him again, yeah, it's funny.
0: And the, but then we get Gilbert Gottfried, who's just improvising, and he has got some of the best lines here. He's like, once I meet The devil, he's going to say, you're not Hitler, you're Bob. He's going to say, Bob, you're in the wrong place. It's so bizarre. And then it cuts over to this. It cuts over to a scene. And I guess the joke was, so Attila the Hun, Cleopatra and Hitler were all dictators. So then the next table over is reserved for future dictators that were going to die. uh, Two of which I didn't recognize. Muammar Gaddafi, I remember from the news. And then there's a seat reserved for Jerry Lewis. Did you see that?
1: Uh, I don't remember Jerry Lewis, but I do remember Walmart Gaddafi. And I think the other person who had a seat reserved there was Imelda Marcos, actually.
0: Okay. But yeah, th- there's a seat yeah, reserved I, for... I
1: didn't notice Jerry Lee. Uh, but yeah. I think that might have been a, a little not comedians, kind of like roasting Jerry Lee, I, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, no, Jerry Lee, actually. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Lewis.
0: Jerry Lewis. Yeah, um... There's a big difference between Jerry Lee Lewis and Jerry Lewis. Um, that was actually. A
1: moment I kind of got them mixed up, yeah. But I think maybe it was like a little rose, too, because um, Jerry Lewis was like a, I guess, let's say a wholesome comedian. We could call him that. He was more about body language, and I guess he comes from a different era. So his comedy was more wholesome, and I guess maybe that's part of the reason why he was so. He had a fairly broad success. So, and these comedians were more, you know, they built a new wave, I guess. They were more aggressive. Their comedy was more uh, savage. It kind of dealt with social issues in a more aggressive and a more direct confrontational way. So, so, maybe that's what it was. It was just maybe among comedians. He was not seen as a real comedian. So, it was like a private dig at someone that maybe in the comedic, uh, comedian community, he's not
0: respected. Well, it I, was I, actually, I remember, let's say. It actually, the idea to have Jerry Lewis's name there was Ben Stiller's idea. And I guess the oh, okay. the, the joke was that um, Jerry Lewis used to be, I mean, you, you say wholesome. His comedy was straight up goofy at times, like The Nutty Professor. He was a, yes. lo- a very over-the-top, silly voices. But then he started to get, like, super serious, like, in the 80s. And for some reason, the French people seemed to love Jerry Lewis. So... Um, the reserved card is written in French. It says like "proof the reserve for Jerry Lewis." So it was all. I that was probably the funniest oh, okay. contribution of that Ben Stiller brought to the movie was like, "Okay, uh, we're going to see Jerry Lewis in hell," but.
1: Yeah, very sophisticated joke. Yeah, very sophisticated on the part of a, uh, a Ben Stiller, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that, and, and, and I think it's funnier than any of the improv that he does earlier in the movie. It should be noted that one of the more, I think, that I found disturbing and also that Andrew, my co-host, found particularly disturbing, the reason he didn't want to talk about this movie, um, and it didn't bother me as a teenager, but it bothered me a lot as an adult is that Beazle who it turns out to be the devil uh, shows up as an auto mechanic but then also shows up to um to save Chad Lowe after he gets shot he's got a little boy companion and like the thought that this little kid who's still alive technically is in hell is pretty disturbing it's and like I said, it didn't really bother me as a teenager. I was probably like, oh my god, the little kid's in hell. And the, but now, like, as an adult, looking back, I'm like, uh-uh, why is this little kid in hell? Please, somebody get him out of hell. Like, this is bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes. I guess someone had that same idea, yeah, because um, I guess we're getting, getting, jumping a little bit ahead, but, um, I mean, he does get rescued from hell, but, yeah, what's interesting about the sequence is, um, before this happens, uh, his car, uh, Chad's car breaks down, and he finds one of these, like, uh, I guess payphones that are like emergency roadside payphones, and there was like a funny exchange where he just shoots the phone. But what leads to that's what leads to Beetzel's character being introduced to the movie, who's very helpful in this place where everybody everybody is either a hostile or a sarcastic asshole. He is very helpful. He he, he tows the car away. He fixes it. He gives him instructions on where to go next to find um find a helicopter. And then that leads to the hop-out situation. And what happens, what you mentioned, when he gets shot, and it turns out he's alive again. He lives because, I guess, his soul is, is kind. There's so much kindness in him that um, Hilltop can't quite kill him. But it's interesting, yeah, and that Beazle, very helpful. He's like the one person who's very helpful and very um kind to, people, kind, kind to him. So that is interesting, and I guess I should have been a tip up to us that way. Why is this guy being so kind in this place where... Everybody is just a dick to you. At, at best, they're a dick. At worst, they, you, they right. want to kill you. Right. They want to take something from you.
0: And, but it, and it turns out, that at the end, we find out that Beezle is Bezelbub, the devil, the entire time. Um, yeah,
1: so Heltop is serving him, and he, I guess he asked him to bring Christy Swanson to him.
0: Right, because she's supposed to be the bride
1: I guess he's bored also, so he kind of set up a situation where Shat Lowe went to find her, you know, went through... All these different levels of hell. I almost want to wonder now. Now I'm trying to think back. How many places did Chatlo go look for her? I, I wonder if it's seven. You know, like is this uh, the seven circles of hell now?
0: Yeah. If
1: he we weak quite an ordeal, like um, he goes through like a series of tunnels and he almost drives off a cliff. Yep. And then he has to follow all these people wearing white cowls. To uh, to shower to Sharon, I think the 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 person who takes you to the beyond, you you have to get on his
0: raft. You have to cross the. He takes
1: you over there, and uh, you have to cross the river character. sticks. Kevin Peter Hall. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know if it's seven. Um. But he, yeah. I. It's probably shy of seven. But yeah, because he eventually ends up, um, crossing the river Styx, and that was a uh, uh, Kevin Peter Hall, who's. I guess best known for playing, uh, playing the Predator in the first two Predator movies. Very, very tall yes. individual um, who's got some great um, makeup going on. His eyes are sewn shut. Um, sewn shut. Yeah,
1: that, was, ugh, that looks so nasty.
0: Yeah. And then we got a three-headed devil dog. And then, um, yeah, he's got to cross the river Styx to finally get to, um, I forget what they call it, Hell City, Hell Tower. Um, but, um, I, I think it was that, yeah, it, you know, I can't remember, but
1: yeah, I guess it's almost like a video game, like, the uh, you're reaching, you're not next to the final level. You're, you're almost at the, the underboss at the underboss level.
0: Right. And I mean, it's, we got a very interesting, um, exchange between, and he actually asked the devil, he's like, well, why, why did you help me then? Like, and he's like. The, the devil's just like a mischief maker, and I guess he's all about temptation. And he, what he finds particularly appealing is that what he really wants is he doesn't want a uh, hell to bring him women to be his bride, he wants someone to come willingly, and they finally. Uh, I mean Chad Lowe offers he goes well we'll let her go but you can keep me and he goes nah I have no interest in you but they finally they finally get their way out of hell by saying okay we're gonna we're we're leaving and we're taking Adam um, Adam was the young boy they were talking about that was um I mean the implications was is that Bezel was grooming him to be the next devil because he was saying that Bezel was, show, like, Bezel. he said, he was talking to, uh, Chad Lowe's character, and he said, Bezel can fix, fix anything, and he's t- teaching me how to fix stuff, so I guess the implication is that, oh, yeah, so, like, yeah, it's there's, true. it's a, it's a very, I mean, and then, but, like, we get this very, it's a very, like, the devil's pretty campy looking, like, he's, got, he's got, like, these green contact lenses, and he's got horns and kind of stuff, but I mean the implications that he's kidnapped this young boy to become the next Satan, that's a that's a pretty yes. that's a pretty heavy thing to to lay out there. Um
1: You know it's funny also now that you mentioned that, the other character, um, I forgot what did you call him, the one who wasn't the the, the delivery of the motorcycle
0: Royce. Royce. <clears throat>
1: Royce, yeah. Royce kinda of has an issue with Beastle and I almost wonder if maybe Royce was supposed to be the next one, but for whatever reason, they haven't, you know, he keeps talking about, I want to leave, like, it's my turn. Like, he gets sort of arguing with Diesel, and I almost wonder, maybe at some point, he was supposed to be the successor, but maybe it didn't work out. I... So, he kidnapped this little boy, and that's part of the issue, why of, uh, Royce is so upset. It's mad, and I guess that's why he took um Liz as a partner.
0: I, and, th- I know, think
1: at leads to that situation where he tries to make a run out of the place and it doesn't quite work out for him, for him and her.
0: Yeah, it's never explicitly explained, but there are hints in conversation between him and uh, Beazle. I think Beazle says something about being disappointed in him. And um... yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking. Yeah, when I heard that, and then you said that about how the boy might be the groom. I'm like, okay, so maybe maybe that's what it is. So at some point, Royce was supposed to do that, but Royce. They didn't work out you know like Royce grew up and I don't know he's a drifter he likes to bikes. he's not taking the interest that the boy is taking in what Diesel does so maybe like that uh, yeah but it's yeah, like you said, not very clear but it's an interesting little wrinkle that you added to the narrative another layer of depth to this movie that definitely I'm appreciating more as we talk about it interesting
0: yeah like I said I think um I, I wouldn't recommend re-watching it right away. But I would recommend, you know, in a couple of years, rewatch this movie. And you because for me, um, the first time I saw it, I didn't get uh, all that much out of it. But once I see, and I got it, I got to give that credit to um, the screenplay is just, it's, and, and I could see why this guy has gone on to, to, to write some incredible movies. And he, he he won the Academy Award for LA Confidential. He's got some serious chops here as a writer. And I think he was yes, really. He, he does have an impressive pedigree. Like, uh, and
1: you know, he shows that here. He, uh, and who knows? Again, who knows what the original draft was like before they, you know, all these producers stepped in and they brought in their comedian friends to, to, to participate in the movie.
0: So I, I, I don't know, but I do know that um, Helgelin has commented that. Um, when he was told, when he was told that i mean the movie that he had written would be too expensive to make he said that it made him more creative as a as a writer to to um to kind of fleshing out um more of the characters and less focus on the set pieces so i think that we get some interesting character development here i think that is actually deeper than you would actually kind of think you would get in a movie like this um
1: i think so yeah yeah because who knows had this i think that this actually would have done well in movie theaters had it gotten the support it needed like even maybe not you know 100 million great but for a movie that let's say let's say they did spend the 20 million it probably could have doubled that profit with a little bit of press, a little bit of support and maybe a somewhat wider release but it's just like i said like we were discussing earlier it looks like they just did the minimum required to fulfill a contractual obligation, and then they just went to video. So who knows? You know, unfortunate. But that's cool uh, uh, that that didn't stop Brian Helgeland from just, you know, keep going, keep writing, keep writing. And before that decade is over, he, he wins an Oscar and and one of the most memorable movies of that decade, Prime movies of that decade.
0: Right, exactly. Um, And, yeah, so there's a lot more going on in this movie than I initially get, kind of gave it credit for. But I think sometimes... Um, I've come across on this, uh, I've i found on this show that a lot of times that when these restraints are put on creative individuals, that the uh, results are usually pretty outstanding. Uh, I mean, a a lot of the filmmakers that I cover here on the show, you know, they they face these kind of restraints, and for one reason or another, it kind of it makes them have to flex that creative muscle a little bit in a, in a different way and exercise it in a different way to kind of get across the goal of what they set out to accomplish. So, you know, Helgelinda has spoken highly about, um, you know, the movie and, you know, he, he is happy with it. Um, uh, Ate De Young has said that, you know, he disagreed a lot with some of the editing that got messed around with but, you know, you know, he's kind of come to terms with it. Um, but yet for I guess for a long time, this was a very, very hard movie to find. I think after the, that initial run. Um, so what happened with. Um, with the um, the home video release was that they had so little faith in this movie that when it was released to home video it was like a package deal with the original terminator so this movie did very very oh. well. it did very very well initially on home video because of that i mean people people would buy it in at stores or you know rental co- you know mom and pop shops or blockbuster would be ordering you know multiple <laughs> copies because you would get a copy of the terminator too so uh, oh, I get it. Yeah, but yeah. then, like, then all these weird things happened with who owns the rights? Because Hemdale went out of, uh, is out is is no longer in, um, it's no longer a thing. I guess pretty much they they yeah. went out of business. They went bankrupt. So Hemdale was no longer a thing. Uh, and then the rights ended up back at MGM, where this kind of started. Uh, it was you know MGM had the rights. Uh, before it was ever produced but then, like I mentioned, they were given to the producers as part of a severance package and then the rights have ended up back at MGM and then MGM will license um, movies like this to something like Kino Lorber who will put together a nice little uh, package. I would say it's just a, it's like a step down from the criterion kind of um, treatment that gets done um, but yeah, Kino yeah, L- yeah,
1: it's a good analogy, yes.
0: Yeah, Kino Lorber, they, they they find some really um uh some weird, obscure, old school movies and they kind of give them a new life. Um because I, I this the the this movie came about a lot because I think a lot of people started to recognize just like how weird this movie was. And I think that a lot of people that initially were turned off because it was a horror movie were like, Oh, but you're telling me it's not a horror movie. It's actually more of a comedy. Oh, okay. Then I'll give it a shot. And, but you were saying that this movie probably would have done, we'll never know how this would have done theatrically. But I, another thing that I can say that I come across quite often here on the show is that this is not a movie that I would want to have to market? Because what aspect? It's a
1: problem. yeah, it's a problematic. How can you market it? Yeah.
0: Because it doesn't fit nicely into a a little genre. I mean, it's got weird horror elements. There's yeah, there's some weird existential kind of thing going on here um there's some comedy it's a it's a road movie it's an action adventure so i mean i'm glad i didn't have to market it so (laughs) that's all i had to say but like (laughs) it's i
1: would definitely see that as a challenge yeah so i appreciate that and i guess this is one characteristic of cult movies they really don't fit into any neat category you cannot quite say it's this or that they seem to sort of go back and forth all over the place I mean, right. Well, that makes him usually interesting to watch, as some point out. Yeah, it makes them help the market.
0: Then. Yeah, and then and then they kind of get forgotten until somebody starts like an, and and a company like Kino Lorber. I mean, I could I would imagine that MGM at this point were just like whatever amount of money you want to give us for the rights, we'll take it. Like we don't really care. <laughs> you know, they got they got yeah. more money than God. They don't. Why would they care? But then it kind of so it gets. Yeah. And then you get people um, kind of rediscovering the movie, and uh, it starts showing up on cult film lists, and people start talking about it again. And I, I think I'm
1: curious now that we're talking about that when You think they turn up on lists? How did you find out about this movie?
0: Well, I told I, I had seen this movie years ago, probably about twenty years ago. Um, what? But I rented it uh, probably from like Blockbuster or something. Uh, it was in the horror section it was but again I think I had mentioned this I felt kind of ripped off because it wasn't really a horror movie and I was kind of going through my yeah har- I was kind of going through my hardcore horror movie thing that like any I but like this movie is is not I mean it's got horrific elements but I wouldn't I wouldn't i don't think it really qualifies as a horror movie at least in general terms of what you typically think especially of uh i mean this movie came out in what it was filmed in it was filmed in 89 uh finished in 90 finally came out in 92 ended up at uh home video in august of 92 so yeah this is not the kind of movie that i would i would i think of when i think of like late 80s early 90s horror movies um yes but I also think that
1: I've I... seen this around the same age. I probably would have been the same. I would have been disappointed. Like I expected horror. Like I haven't. You know. Like we're more sophisticated. We're more sophisticated people now, so we appreciate that nuance. But as a kid, you know, like I, I, I had a more hardline approach to movies. If it's as hard, I expect horror. And so I probably would have been disappointed
0: too. Yeah. But the thing is, though, after you watched that as a teenager, do you remember it at all? In the years,
1: you know, since when you move on to do other things, that you. Did you remember it at all or did it come into your mind recently or did someone bring it, bring your attention to it?
0: So I think two things happened that this ended up on my, my list here to cover on the show was, um, I think one of the movies that I wanted to cover, I might still cover it was Drop Dead Fred because I loved that movie as a kid. So I was thinking, and then I was looking. I was like, "Does well, Drop Dead Fred?" Yeah, it does kind of have a cult reputation. But then I was like, "Well, I kind of, li- I just kind of liked the weird quirkiness of it." I was like, "Well, what else did this director do?" And then I was like, "Highway to Hell." It's like, "Oh my god!" I it, it, it all kind of came flooding back to me. Um, and then upon re, then I like watched the trailer on YouTube, and I was like, "Oh, I remember Highway to Hell." And so I got. Uh yeah, I ordered the DVD and I was watching it I'm like, yeah, th- this I totally see why this has a cult following. I didn't get I didn't get it, but again, I think that I I had gone in on the mindset like you said, like when we're at a certain age, when I rented this, I rented this from the horror section, I expected a horror movie. High and this was not delivering what I expected. Now as like you said when we grow up and we mature and we kind of open ourselves up i mean i it's quite possible that if i had rented this from the comedy section uh i might have thought differently about it upon first viewing but you know they, we got to play the the cards that were dealt and mm. Yeah, so it's just like a series of weird kind of uh, steps that I was like, oh, so it's it's out. It's got a cult following. I do remember seeing this in the video store. Uh, let me check it out again, and uh, I, I like it. I like it because it's um, it's so different. It's so I mean there is. There is, if you really want to get deep with this movie, you can actually get pretty deep in this movie. Um, we talk about mm, temptation, yes. we talk about um, what are we doing with our lives. Because one of the things that I totally didn't get, and then I, I finally kind of picked up when the director was talking, that I mean, the whole there's a whole and it's not very clearly explained in the movie, but there's a scene and i didn't i didn't really understand why this was coming up but there's a scene where she's in the back of the hell car and she's watching tv and it shows like two versions of her life one where she's a fat mother of kids making pizza in some weird pizza place and she's miserable and then it shows her dream i guess is to be a professional violin player i didn't get that but
1: yes, yeah I remember that yeah so like
0: and then like the devil gives her these choice like he never i mean it's contradictory because he stole her he kidnapped her but then he gives her the choice he's like well you could stay with me and be you'll be the most famous violin player in the world um, which, mm. which brings us to the end of this movie because, uh, we're, uh, we're getting close here on time, but I want to talk about the ending. And I also want to talk about the alternate ending with you. So, um, okay. the movie kind of, uh, it wraps up that they have, a um, they have to race Hellcop and they beat Hellcop because there's nitrous, He's got, there's a nitrous booster in this very sweet vintage yeah, Ford that car.
1: Unexpected. That was just there suddenly that she's looking for a shotgun shell, but then she finds that those flick, those switches and, oh wait, like, so this guy had NAS all this time, but and I guess like you said, yeah, that wins.
0: Well, there it was a, out of hell. there is, there is a scene, there is a line foreshadowing that when, when he's driving away. Um. After the second time going back to the gas station, when he gets the vintage Ford to go to hell to save her, the guy's yelling at him. Uh, I forgot to mention. There's something in the car. There's something special in that car. Uh, so it Whoa. is. It is set up. It. it I mean. It's oh,
1: not. Wow. Very clever. Then yeah, he did set it up. Then well, I thought he was still there, but no, wow, it shows. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of depth to that script.
0: Yeah, there's it's a lot more clever than I initially gave it credit for. Um I mean there's a so they escape hell, Hell Hellcop comes out, there's a real cop there, and Adam tells them that they need to shoot Hellcop in the eyes. Um That kills him. It's kind of anticlimactic. Well, it's not. It's kind of. It's we get this big climax of this very cool chase scene where they're where they're racing, where they're racing hell cop, and uh, you don't know if they're gonna win or not. Then they hit the nitrous, and uh, they shoot out of hell, and uh, they're back in the real world, and then the cop. I mean, oh, we should. Well, we forgot to mention previous to adam going to hell he was driving back and forth between these joshua trees and a real cop not the hell cop uh tried to stop him and that same cop is like right there in that same place so i don't know if time stands still in hell
1: oh, yes. yeah he or was the same guy from earlier also the- i guess one thing that i have question is um did hell cop cheat a, a cheat because it's like he- they raced ahead of him they got out of hell and I thought that that would be it, but then he shows up again. It's like, wait, like, they won. What are you doing here? Like, Beasel doesn't seem to be after them anymore. So I I imagine Beasel accepts that they won, but Hellcop, I guess, did he cheat then and said, I'm going after them anyways?
0: Well, he's Hellcop, Of course he's going to cheat. Hell's in his name. Okay. <laughs> it's one of those things, I guess. I don't know if he carries a grudge, or I guess Hellcop always gets his man or woman. Yeah, yeah but yeah, no, so it's... But
1: he decides to just come from beyond and at least to that whole sequence um, of them. Like, um, there's the cop that uh, you mentioned, the real cop, handcuffs him. And, and while he's doing that, hell, cop just plows, appears, and, you know, beats up the other guy. I think he strangles him or, like, smashes his skull against the car, something like that.
0: Yeah. And then, um... And then they use this uh, special gun with special bullets that they got from uh Richard Farnsworth, the gas station guy early on. And, um... Yeah, she finds the last bullet, the last shell, and shoots Hellcop right in the eyes. And that's. Adam says, this is a funny scene. They're like, he's like, he's like, you got to shoot him in the eyes. And the guy, <laughs> Chad Lowe's like, why didn't you tell me that before? And he's like, because I'm on your side now. And you're like, all right, kid. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.
1: Yeah, exactly. He seems to just that, whatever makes things exciting for him. I guess he's been around forever. <laughs>
0: so, um,. Yeah, so Hellcop's dead. Uh, Beazle is left there. Wife, no wife. And we fade to black. And after, so it, the end comes up. Did you stop the movie then, or did you keep watching?
1: I watched a few seconds, but it was a, a little bizarre. It was like a black screen with no credits.
0: Okay. Um, if you keep watching, it, I don't know what Tubi, like, Tubi might stop. Um,. There's, uh, like an epilogue that t- that tells you what happened with everyone and.
1: Oh, I missed that. Yeah. So oh, they, I it, it kind
0: of wraps you wraps everything up. It says that um, the two characters uh they got married. Chad Lowe and Chrissy Swanson got married. He developed some video games about their experience on Hell. She runs uh, a hotter than hell pizzeria. And occasionally serenades the customers with the violin. Adam, um, mm. the young boy, um, went to live with his uh, grandparents or his aunt and uncle. Uh, the gas station guy still warns strangers about, um, you know, the portal to hell, and it, it, so it's kind of all wrapped up. But our last shot is basically um, Beasles left. Uh, he was watching the race on um, on this like sand hill, and um,
1: yeah, on the mountain.
0: And yeah, then, that so the helicopter's dead. Now, originally scripted, the ending was supposed to be that the two characters were going to the to the airport and they were going to separate. They weren't going to get married. Now, the implication hmm. the implication was that. They both kind of had to find themselves. She was going to go study violin at a music conservatory. He was going to go someplace else. But they said, well, you know, maybe, you know, if it's meant to be, we'll come back together. And that um, that producer came in again and said, no, 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 no. We need to have a happy ending. <laughs> um, that guy, John Daly, the one that likes to mess around with people's edits, uh, he said there needed to yeah. be a happy ending. So they kind of compromised and so what happens is Hellcops dead, uh our two heroes are still alive, they're still together. Um and to compromise, John Daly's like, Well, okay, but you can write this little epilogue thing. So uh Aunt Aunt Dejon uh wrote this whole thing about what happened to the characters and then John Daly's like, we're going to put it at the very end of the credits. Like, this was before, like, you know, I know, like, end credit stingers have been around long before the the MCU. But now everybody sticks around to watch the credits because there's going to be a post credit scene and an end credit scene. Um, yeah, so he just wanted to tack this epilogue at the very end when nobody in 1989 was going to sit through the credits to watch. Yeah, definitely not me. So what happens is now it, this, uh, scene ends, uh, fade to black. It says the end. And then before the credits starts, um, an epilogue comes up. Um, yeah. So that's the, uh, what are your thoughts on the different, the different, I know you didn't see either ending. Which one, which one do you think works better for this movie?
1: I guess the, the happy ending one works better, but I like the honesty of the other one where they, you know, it's not really an unhappy ending. It's just like they kind of realize that their kids, they don't really know themselves yet. And they, they should just take some time and figure out, you know, like if they still feel the same way for each other, say a year or two later. Right. So I don't know. It, it, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a good compromise. I think it's a good compromise. Like the happy ending works. As, they're like a family in a way of speaking, but they're kids themselves.
0: Yeah, raised yeah. like a
1: little boy, which is what that, the movie implies that they're like a family now.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like the feeling that I got that they were going to, um, that if they didn't adopt Adam, but it's it's mentioned specifically that you know he's he's living happily with his um, aunt and uncle or his grandparents or something. So everyone's
1: and I guess there's no mention too that the fact that they you know their parents are expecting them to come back and like that they love. So there's that whole other subplot oh. almost you could say when that's waiting for them to deal with their parents when they come back home
0: i'm very very sorry i forgot to mention the first line of this epilogue that we get is they are happily oh. married with their parents blessing i'm sorry i should have mentioned oh, that
1: okay so that feels a bit like attack on yeah like maybe don't put that there like everything else is okay but don't say oh yeah they're happily married with their marriage blessing like right. i don't know like maybe say you know, they went to college, and then they got they married again. But it works, I guess. Uh, the thing is, though, I guess it's better if you had not put anything, really. Like, that ending as a face to black, that works. Right. Like, they beat the devil. Like, why are you thinking so far ahead? They've been through an incredible journey that no one, very few people experience, you know, like a journey like the one they went through. Like, and they just got through it. So just let them, you know, end, end it on that note. And then it, leave it on that note.
0: Yeah, so I um, mean, the fact
1: that you put a, a a prologue and you put it so far in the credits where nobody is gonna see it, like very few people would stick around that far in the credits. Well, no, 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 like a, almost like a fuck you to the to the director.
0: No, 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 no. It comes before the credits start. You get this epilogue. Oh, okay, okay, I got it. Originally, it feels like originally, originally into no. That. Yeah, no, we get, it's weird that we fade to black and it says the end. If we fade it to black and then the epilogue started, like it's, it's like scrolling text comes up on the screen, kind of like, you know, like Star Wars with the scrolling text. Um, But yeah, no, the producer tried to tack this on at the very, very end of the credits. Um, But no, this, this is before the credits start. But again, with Tubi, sometimes it's weird the way that they, like once it says the end, Sometimes they kind of want to automatically shift you to another movie. It's like, well, you finished watching Hideaway to yeah, win the Hell. Yeah,
1: <laughs> options come up below, so it doesn't really give you time to just do that. Yeah. So, and that's why I stopped that before. It started another movie. I was like, okay, I, I'm not watching anything else tonight. So I just didn't stick around for that. That is really the one drawback of Tubi. Like, it just immediately, hey, you can watch this stuff. Like, let me finish
0: watching what I'm watching now. Yeah, you get that with all the streaming services. They're, they're eager just to keep you hooked and watching something else.
1: They keep you there,
0: yeah. So, um, Scary a, kinda, a some, uh, quick, uh, trivia here before we start wrapping up. Uh, there is a nod to the Rocky Horror Picture Show in that Beezle's truck says Satanic Mechanic, uh, uh, thank you, Andrew, my co-host, for noticing that. I didn't pick up on that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, what, neither uh, did I. It took two and a half hours for the Hell Cop makeup to be applied. And Damn. Uh, it got to the point where that actor could only be in the makeup for a couple hours at a time because he started to get extremely claustrophobic um, to the to, like, to the point where he couldn't, like, function. Like, he couldn't act, he couldn't function. Like, he was so claustrophobic. I would he's...
1: imagine, too, plus the heat also of the desert and you're under all that latex and stuff and that thick uniform. and Yeah, I would imagine, yeah. So It works, I guess, even though he's not in the movie a lot. When he does show up, he's very memorable. That he never talks. He, he just moves and just knocks people over, takes things. Dude, he is a very impulsive person, so he really didn't need to talk. Everything he communicated through. really
0: yeah, yeah, he's got no lines. It's all body language acting and he was actually originally in the movie Less, but people um they kind of discovered early on when they were going through the dailies that this, they they were onto something with this character. So they started putting um him in more scenes than he was uh, originally scripted. Um for instance, that there's a fight between him and Chad Lowe's character um Right before or right after that whole demon temptation thing happened, there's like a fight where, um, between the two of them in this weird room. Uh, that was kind of just added just to have more of the helicopter. They, they liked that they, yeah. they, they thought they were onto something with the helicopter. So they, they put him in, uh, more than, um, than he was originally scripted. They had two versions of the the vintage Ford that is driven in the movie and two versions of the Hellcop car uh one was for driving one was for stunts one of those cars the one meant for driving was almost destroyed by a uh the first stunt coordinator that they were using for the movie there's a scene where um early on in the journey to hell they they uh they're racing um uh Chad Lowe's racing the Hell Cop, and he goes off the side of the road and the Hell Cop goes like right through this big sign uh apparently the driver was supposed to stop and he just kept going he went right through this sign almost killed a cameraman and then was oh, immediate- wow. he was fired from the movie so and the second, Damn. the second, uh, they, so they had two Ford vintage cars that were the main cars used in the movie, one of which was in decent condition, one of which was only used for the final stunt of the car coming out of hell and going back to the real world. And it performed its little stunt of uh, driving through this portal and landing, but immediately Died after that, but they were they got all the shots that they needed, so they were lucky to do that.
1: I'm very lucky for
0: them. The scene with the 13 lane highway in hell, um, which other than the Ford, every other car on that highway is a German car, most of them are Volkswagens.
1: Volkswagens, yeah, that was such a crazy scene. Like, all these cars are zipping along. Oh, no lanes. It just looks like this massive strip of
0: uh, asphalt. Well, basically, what they did was, the idea was that the only cars that would be in hell would be German cars because of the Holocaust. <laughs> so yeah. what what they did is they kind of, they went around to the people of, um I, I think this, this was filmed in Arizona, this particular scene. They basically went around and got people to, like, not donate their cars, but allow their cars to be driven for that one scene. They were like, well, we need lots and lots and lots of cars. And thankfully they got enough because that scene is massive. That's all, I mean, this was all before CGI. Like we're not, we're not using CGI here. These are all cars and it's not a very long shot, but I mean, it's just amazing. Like you said, cars are going all over the place. Um, It's it's hysteria. it's
1: just a car zipping along. Some of them even hitting each other also.
0: And uh, one last little piece of trivia. Uh, This is more so about Brian Helgeland uh, than it is about Highway to Hell, but it kind of wraps up um, with our whole cult film companion kind of thing. So in 1998, he won the Academy Award for L.A. Confidential. That same year, he won the Razzie for the screenplay for The Postman, which is a terribly terribly bloated uh, Kevin Costner project. And not only Mm -hmm. did did he show up to um, receive his Oscar trophy, he was the fourth person nominated for the Razzies. If you're not familiar with the Razzies, (laughs) they're pretty much the opposite of the Oscars. These are the worst movies (laughs) of the year. Uh, He was the fourth person to show up um to actually receive his Razzie and I only mention this because I don't think I brought this up on our Showgirls episode but Paul Verhoeven was one of the first if not the first person to show up to accept his Razzie award for worst director for Showgirls <laughs> and That's funny. not it was o- interesting
1: too, that 1998 um, payback came out and he had originally written and directed or rather adapted that from a novel and directed it but i think uh, oh, he got me placed and someone else directed that movie so very busy 1997 and
0: 1999 for uh, uh for uh, brian Helgeland. well you, you, you kind of uh you beat me to the punch i was gonna say random movie oh, recommendation I, I recommend payback it was actually payback came out in 99 not in 98. Oh, um, okay, okay, okay. But speaking of... Well,
1: it was very busy time in the late 90s for Brian,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and he's still, he's still cranking out scripts. But I yeah, will say uh, that I recommend Payback, but get the Payback director's cut because there was a lot of studio meddling going on with Payback, and Helgeland's vision was greatly, greatly changed. And this is I one of... I have it, to agree with
1: that, yeah, and... This is one case where I'm actually okay with the studio version. Like, I like what they did for the studio release. Because I did see the the, the the director's cut. And while I liked it, I... It, I don't, like, we talked about happy endings. I talk about not having a happy ending with the director's cut.
0: Yeah. Well, that we, at some point, maybe we'll cover payback. But um, let's uh, start wrapping... Oh, I
1: love to, yeah, I love those uh, I love that. I like the movie. And I like the, the book on which it's based, which is a series of novels... Written by Donald Westlake, in fact, under a pen name.
0: Yeah, uh, The Hunt... Uh, I wanted to uh, ask
1: you, on the trailer you read, does it say that at some point they were considering doing a sequel with Hellcop at the start? Because um, the video that I watched, they did mention that that they discussed it. They were so impressed with Hellcop that they were considering... There was consideration to try to make another movie with Hellcop at the, at the center.
0: Uh, I didn't read anything like that. and um, The director didn't mention anything in the commentary. But then again... The commentary was recorded fairly recently, so this wasn't like... I mean, I, I, given given the way that Hollywood treats horror franchises, if this movie, or action franchises, if this movie had been a success, I wouldn't doubt if there had been multiple Highway to Hell movies, because, I mean, you could say that Hell Cop is unkillable. The devil's still very much in control of hell. We just had two people that escaped, so... Yes. Th- I mean, there's endless, literally endless possibilities here that they could explore. I didn't see anything like that, just because okay. I, I, I think, I mean, this movie went through so much. Companies going bankrupt, this script floating from company to company. I mean, it's kind of a miracle yes, yeah. that this movie actually exists in any form today, I mean, whatsoever. Yeah
1: again it's better too like it, it's just one little it's a one-time thing it's like this, it's a great little gem of a movie like that. and hopefully us talking about it here will get more people interested in it because it's um one thing that happens to movies with the years with sequels is like we saw what happened to the hell racer movies over the years they became a joke and same with the howling you know when you consider the first howling movie to so what the the sequels became it it's probably better that uh, this just stayed as it is it's just this one one time one one shot
0: only and like you said um it, it doesn't get diluted with sequels and like you said this is a little like hidden mm. hidden gem of a movie this is definitely something to check out if you like absurdist humor and uh, you like uh something that's a little a little smarter than you th- actually think it is Uh there's a there's, there's, uh, there's some yes, yeah i going on smart yeah because
1: given that can't be told the first half it's uh, uh, unexpectedly smart, and it's a little inconsistent in tone, but it, it's uh, entertaining. Yeah, no, this is you're definitely for ninety three minutes or so. Like you'll be entertained. This is a lot of fun to watch and very entertaining. And it surprises you with these little moments that kind of elevate the movie to something above average.
0: Exactly right. I mean, there's enough, there's enough little extra little things going on in the in the costumes, and the production design, just the fact that it's filmed in actual locations. It gets you. I mean, you get wrapped up in this very weird version of hell that actually seems like a kind of a fun place to be at times. I'm not gonna lie, but um yeah,
1: exactly. It seems kind of enjoyable. Yeah.
0: So Melvin, final thoughts on Highway to Hell?
1: Um, check it out. It's free on Tubi. The way to be a setup, they will not let you watch that little um epilog uh, uh it's an epilogue or prologue. Uh, epilogue. I guess epilogue is at the end. Yeah. yeah. The way to be a setup may it you probably won't be able to watch that epilogue, but I feel that when it fades to black, that's it. That's really where the movie should end. And it's a lot of fun. It, it's a really well made movie, like above average for something that feels like a more like that went straight to video, almost it's really well made. It's a really well made movie that uh, well worth your time. You will not be bored by watching.
0: No, that is one thing I can definitely say. Even though Andrew didn't want to talk about this movie, he he watched the entire thing and he said, at the very least, I was entertained. Um, but he has he wasn't his. Interested in talking about it? No, I'll I'll tell. I'm gonna. T- I'll tell you about it after we wrap up this episode. So so Melvin is a content creator, find him on Instagram at RoboPulp, and check out his online comic, The Plot. Uh, find him on Instagram, follow him on, on Instagram, check out his comic, follow us on Instagram at CultFilmComp. Our website, through ACAST, has links to our podcast on all different platforms, so wherever you choose to get your Podcasts of choice i'm sure that we're available there if we're not you can message me on instagram or shoot me an email at the cult film companion at com. and i want to thank my guest melvin for joining me thank you all for listening and we'll be back with some more cult favorites very very soon good night
1: good night